Welcome to a roundtable discussion with uh, Editorial Intelligence to mark the Mobile World Information's Pace of Change conference. I'm joined around the table today by Charlie Beckett, who's the Director of Polis, a media think tank at the London School of Economics. Also around the table is Gabby Derbyshire, COO of Gorka Media in New York, uh, a company that runs websites including Gorka and Gizmodo. And finally, Julia Hobsbawm, the founder of Editorial Intelligence, um, and the woman who's bringing this group together today. So let me go to Julia first and ask her, why are we talking about the mobile world? This is the, the name of the, the conference this roundtable is marking, but what precisely do you mean by the, the concept? Well, it's interesting because you say mobile world, and on some level everybody understands what that means because mobile literally and metaphorically is dominating everything. So literally the mobile device, we now have something like 4 billion people connected by mobile phone and everything is transacted on it. The exchange of information, frivolous and serious, the internet, uh, politics and, of course, the media. So what we wanted to do with this particular conference is look in depth at everything from the cultural aspects, the technological aspects, the latest apps and so on, to more the philosophy and politics, which is how people are mobilised through what we're terming as a generic, the mobile world. Charlie, you study this academically. Has the advent of much higher mobile phone penetration changed the way that you look at the internet? Is this a, a real step forward in the way that we're to understand the link of technology and society? Yes, I think so, James, in, in two ways, really. Firstly, um, there's the kind of external factor that uh, mobility brings uh, new ways of uh, communicating to millions of people, and they can access very direct and personally huge networks of information, especially when you've got a mobile phone plus smartphone plus internet. Um, but also it's quite interesting the way if you internalise the effect of mobility for individuals, families and communities, that it is becoming not just a, uh, in fact, more rarely something that you actually talk through, but increasingly it's becoming part of the second, third screen in our lives. And the fact that it's mobile, the fact that it's uh, intimate uh, is creating a different kind of communications, I think. Does that have big political implications? I mean, we all have quite personal relationships with these devices in our pockets, but, but do, does it reach out more widely? Well, the, the research cop-out here is it's too early to tell. And this is a fact that we're witnessing the sort of co-evolution of other social trends uh, with this new technology. So, yes, we are definitely seeing uh, superficial differences in the way that people behave and the way they express themselves, and that can definitely translate into uh, short-term political effects, not just the dramatic ones with the Obama campaign or in uh, the Arab uprisings, but in the way that people expect to be able to communicate, for example, with those in authority. Well, let me, let me ask Gabby. The websites that you run are some of the most popular on the internet. Has the advent of smartphones and a, and a higher penetration of mobile devices changed the way that your company operates and the way the websites that you run offer? Uh, absolutely, yes, it has. I think um, it's an interesting situation for publishers that uh, you can put out a product in print, which is still you know, something that one wants to touch and hold and feel and read at your leisure. But pretty much everybody who publishes these days has some form of feed that enables breaking news and timely content to be delivered to its audience through a mobile device. And if you're not doing that, you're basically you know, out of touch with the modern... Um, era. So there's all these different distribution platforms and the mobile 
one is simply the most efficient way to get content to an audience in a timely fashion. And how does the world of mobile interact with the world of social networking? I mean, that's the other big trend that people have been writing about, particularly this year when you've seen Twitter and Facebook revolutions much in the news. Are these different phenomena or do they link together in the world in which you operate? Well, they certainly are linked insofar as one of the um, best distribution platforms we found for our content is, in fact, the integration of mobile with Facebook. And uh, it's certainly the case that social sharing of content, uh, we tend to want, we are all, it's not that we're sheep, but we all tend to want to um, have an editorial filter or a voice that we trust that tells us what's worth reading. And I certainly don't have time to read 20 magazines or newspapers every day, but the people that I follow who are journalists who do it for a living, uh, say I follow them on Twitter or on Facebook, um, they've already done that editorial filtering and picking for me. And so the fact that you can do social sharing or you can follow someone on Twitter enables you to access a much wider range of information than you would possibly be able to do on your own. And if everybody was doing it, nobody have to have time to do the half of it. Charlie Beckett, I mean, you've you've written about this, I think, the way in which um, sort of social networking brings people together in some parts of the world, but less so in others, and also the political implications. I mean, what's your take on the the interlinkage of mobility and social networking? I think Gabby's right to say that this isn't necessarily about bunch of technologies replacing previous technologies. Uh, People haven't suddenly abandoned the way that they used to communicate and therefore the way they do other stuff like politics. It adds to and it makes it much more complex. Uh, People are having multimedia lives um, and therefore the internet as they say is unevenly distributed and part of the function of the communications you know, professionals or industries or even politicians uh, is to learn to adapt new ways of filtering that information and connecting people. And, of course, people are also doing it themselves. And that's what we saw in North Africa, where people weren't waiting for the journalists to interpret and filter this data. They were creating it and, in a sense, editing it themselves and using it in multiple ways. So they weren't abandoning newspapers or TV. They were adding social media and mobility uh, to the way that they were doing their politics. And I think it does make uh, something different. Uh, This stuff doesn't create the revolutions, of course, and it certainly doesn't then run the government afterwards in a completely different way. But just the way these things have happened, partly enabled by these technologies, I think is kind of creating the potential, at least, for a more networked and more diffuse politics. Now, that may not be a good thing. I think it's interesting. Julia, you've got a strong background in politics. What's your take on this? Well, actually, I was going to say something slightly different, which is about the fact that the mobile device is part of this huge trend towards individuality and individualization and personalization in an increasingly mass media, mass movement world. And so people care very much about the physical phone that they have in their pocket because it allows them to do whatever it is they're doing, whether they're gaming, whether they're social networking, whether they're taking news feeds, whether they're taking... Uh, what um, we know there's a market for because we we provide it ourselves, an aggregation of information. Um, And I'm very interested in the fact that the mobile device is at the centre of this curious interface between entirely screen-based living and increasingly face-to-face living. And I think we're moving into the era of the networking age, the face-to-face generation alongside the Facebook in, in, in generation. But you're never going to stop using your mobile phone. 
If I could add something about the the Middle East, I think what's interesting is you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of column inches been written about the fact that I don't know Facebook created a revolution, and I agree wholeheartedly with Charlie that that that's not true. Um, it doesn't create a revolution, nor can it run a government afterwards. But I think what it does do is it enables people who are on the cusp of acting to feel that they are supported and have allies. And if you think that everybody else is backing you up and has um, uh, empathy with your actions, it, it makes you stronger and makes you more able to follow through on those actions, which if you didn't have the networking, you probably might be unwilling to do. And I think that's really the important thing about social networking, is that it gives you a cadre of like-minded people who will help encourage you to act. Charlie, do you think that the events of this year throughout the Arab Spring when uh, would have been different were it not for the fact of Twitter and Facebook, or, or would this have happened anyway? Well, I think that the, the root causes of it, of course, are unemployment and you know an increasingly educated and uh, independently thinking population who are very young. But you can't ignore this this factor. Partly, I think the impact on speed and the repl- replicability of what happened. So the the fact that in Tunisia there was, as Gabby says, if you like, it was an enabling technology. It happened at the cusp. It enabled people to build solidarity. And then secondly, when you saw that spreading, the evidence very much self-declared from the people involved in Egypt was we saw this on Al Jazeera. We got the messages on Facebook. We perhaps also uh, got it messaged on Twitter and so on. And that was a, a shocking and inspiring example. And so that visibility... Um, of something happening, I think, is a really important factor in in that kind of short-term political eruption. So I think it's definitely a factor in terms of the pace of change. Um, in terms of the long-term direction, that's a different issue, of course. Let's uh, let's turn the discussion in a slightly different direction, away from the streets and towards the buildings of government. Uh, to what extent is the state and politics able to keep up with this revolution? We've seen this year the problems of Twitter and super injunctions in which the law is being made to look, in Britain at least, rather stupid against the pace of technological change. So, Julia, do you think that that this is something that politicians can keep up with, or is it something where, the, where technology is going to race ahead of our ability to govern it and keep it under control? Well, I think politicians are realising belatedly that you can't completely control the flow of information and that the only antidote is to provide more information, not less. And there's a whole series of um, reviews and revisions of government websites which actually are pretty unintelligible at the moment. And if you really want to find out information, you don't go to a government website. In terms of the way uh, the mass, um, what... um, the the political analyst Neil Stewart calls the electronic mob do is they can clearly force and tip the hand of politicians to act and indeed the judiciary in the case of the recent super injunctions but what matters is always the baseline is the trust that exists between a people and its government and I think what's been happening is again Charlie's point about technology assists and enables and Gabby's point but it doesn't define the nature of an uprising a rebellion so again people use in my view Twitter to do everything from the banal to the very meaningful but they have to have a reason to rebel and they do that when a law is wrong and it forces the hand of politicians and policymakers to think a hell of a lot more carefully about what they're legislating 
on and, you know, that's good news. Gabby Derbyshire, you're based in New York. Have the same problems that we in Britain have been having with the, our laws not being able to keep up with the pace of change been seen in the US? And do you find that Gorka's um, products are, are constrained by what the law allows you to do? Well, actually, we're rather lucky in the US in so far as um, the freedom of speech is pretty much the most important thing um, in, in the American law as it relates to publishing. And that gives us um, an advantage. I don't think super injunctions would ever get off the ground in the US. Um, so I think we have it a little easier in that respect. Certainly, we have a very... Um, engaged and passionate audience and when they don't like something I call them the vociferous core you may call them a mob but they certainly speak loudly and I think that is sort of prevalent across um, American uh, media and, and publishing that the audience does feel that they have a real stake in the uh, in the conversation and the outcome and they will hold anyone's feet to the fire prevents them from doing that. So I do think we have an advantage. Was it, did I, I, I think one of the journalists who worked for Gorka had their laptop seized in the last year. Is that, is that right? I mean, there are That's ways actually, in which the state can try and keep control of journalists, even in an age of great mobility. That, that's, a, that's an interesting one. That was a particularly... Um, fascinating situation because it actually frightened a lot of um, newspaper publishers. Um, our writer had um, obtained some information. We published a story about something that the uh, the so-called owner of the product was actually Apple and they didn't like the idea that we had got hold of this prototype of an iPhone. Um, and the police broke down my editor's door and took all of his electronic equipment um, on the basis that they needed it to investigate whether a crime had been committed. And of course, in America, we have something called the shield law, which protects journalists from uh, being their equipment being taken from their newsroom in the investigation of a crime, because obviously no source would talk to you if they felt that the police could come and get your computers and find out source information about them from something that was completely unrelated. So it's a very important point. And to do that was very much a shock because it so many journalists these days work from home. There is no formal newsroom. Your home is your newsroom. And so if it was possible for them to come in there, then this has huge ramifications for everybody. And as a result, this became a big issue because the question was, were online journalists who work from home going to be somehow treated differently from print journalists uh, and the mainstream media? And I think it's pretty clear now that American courts and and, um, the judiciary realize that that distinction is a distinction without a difference and you can't really maintain it. So Charlie Beckett, and again, you you, uh, are in an academic environment. Uh, I mean, how do you see the interplay of fast-changing technology and slow-moving legislation? (laughs) Um, certainly the internet has, has raised all sorts of questions that we keep raising in private seminars with lawyers and they are unable to answer them. Um, I think there's something bigger here. Um, good old-fashioned censorship and control is still very, very prevalent around the globe. So there's plenty of good old-fashioned, even in terms of the internet, um, there is still, it's still a mechanism that you can try and control, either as a government or, interestingly, and we saw this around WikiLeaks, around corporations, um, that it, the, the threat to, to WikiLeaks was more that uh, Visa and PayPal withdrew the funding than it was through the courts because WikiLeaks, being a sort of internet enterprise, was able to claim a kind of stateless immunity. Um, I think there's something 
that goes deeper. There's a big contradiction at the heart of, uh, of a lot of internet enterprise, which is privacy. On the one hand, the, uh, there's the so-called mobs on Twitter who want to know everything and your super injunctions will not stop us knowing about some celebrity's sex life. And yet, of course, at the same time, the very same people are very, very worried about what happens to their privacy when they go into social networks. And so this is not just a strictly legal uh, problem about terms and conditions and legislation. This is something about the whole kind of etiquette and the trade in, in personal data that the internet has got to try and manage. And, of course, what worries us is that we lose the freedom of expression uh, without gaining the protection. Julia Hobson. Well, I, I think what's also worth putting into the mix here is the, the sort of the physics, the space and dimension and time elements at which information is transacted, because it's not just privacy that gets compromised, it's, but you know, that old trusty sword of truth, because when information is put out at a nanosecond, i.e. before it can be fully verified, before it can be fully corroborated, the views and the judgments and the acceleration of those opinions being uh, exchanged are in uh, such a rapid succession that you can't necessarily discern fact from opinion from hearsay. So there's a whole ethical, moral dimension going on. And it's worth reflecting briefly that when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, news reached this country by rowing boat. Okay, really, really slowly. Uh, this was the day of the of the f where news could not be imparted more physically than for a you know it to arrive by boat, and now it decelerates uh, into the bloodstream. In that the minute it happens, you've got Twitter, and then we have the commentators reflecting over a period of days, explaining what truth is, explaining, and that's a massive difference. At the at the conference, let's uh, let's conclude on this point. I mean, we'll we'll be talking about where we're going with this in the future. So uh, let me ask each of our guests here: What's the either one of the the big challenges that we have to address in the mobile world, or one of the big trends for the future that we should be looking at that's coming down the coming down the tracks? And let me turn to Gabby first. Well, I think following on from what Julia just said, um, the, the speed of publication causes an awful lot of problems for both privacy and truth and all the rest of it. And I think that there's certainly a discussion, if not a movement in America, to perhaps consider these instantaneous delivery device mechanisms as an altogether different kind of speech. So, for example, um, something said on Twitter in um, an off-the-cuff comment maybe wouldn't be considered as a statement of fact and therefore not capable of being libelous. Those kind of questions are arising because it is obviously a very different thing, 140 character um, off-the-cuff comment from something that's a researched article full of d data. So you've got the, those sort of the legal changes about speech that are important to publishers. And then you've got all the issues about sort of privacy on the internet and to Charlie's point about the amount of data that we give over to these very large corporations. Um, the fear is that it's not that you're concerned about whether the world at large has an insight into what you do because you choose to go on a social network. It's 
what else has um, who else has an insight through the data that may get out to third party hands inappropriately whether it's a medical insurer who somehow without you knowing increases your premiums because they see photographs of you smoking and drinking or whatever you might be doing as a young person on Flickr or um, Facebook it's all these issues there are many many political ramifications of the world we live in and it's going to take decades for us to see the results and understand how to change the world accordingly. Charlie Beckett, what would you pick as uh, as an issue that we haven't yet grappled properly with? Well, I think what, what's interesting, um, sort of following what from Gabby said, is that you know, we are going to be, the, the empirical fact is we're going to be in a world where there are more mobile phones than people, and there's sort of universalism, and when that gets connected to the internet, uh, that puts us in a really interesting phase in the media uh, cycle, if you like, the media and industry cycle. Facebook is only seven years old, but it's rapidly getting to a point where it's so important and mature, it's having to think much harder about what the shape of this industry even is in this cycle. And there is this sense that uh, if you follow Timothy Wu's thesis, and um, that, that, that somehow... Uh, the old corporate and governmental structures will reassert themselves, and that is possible, but I don't think so. I think the fact of this universal mobile internet access with all its variations means that we are uh, in a different place where I suspect that all institutions uh, and individuals are going to have to live with a kind of uncertainty principle. And I think there's a sort of instability in our communications uh, and our media networks, which I actually welcome, because I think with that comes creativity and a certain element of, of freedom that people can exploit. Very good. And that, you mean uh, Timothy Wu, the American academic, is that right? Hmm. Very good. And Julia, so the last last word to you. What, um, what do you think we haven't quite got a handle on as you look down the road to the, the, the mobile world that's coming towards us? Well, Charlie and I both sit on the World Economic Forum's Council on the Informed Society, and I guess what preoccupies me in the end is how we separate the wheat from the chaff. How do you have society, societies, which fundamentally know through the policymaking, through the media, through the entertainment, the difference between information and not just propaganda, but mis misinformation. And I think we have so much overload... The challenge is going to be um, to increasingly refine and signpost information that people can make the best choices about. That sounds quite worthy, but I think it's going to be completely necessary. Otherwise, we're all going to get clogged up and not literally be able to move for data. So from the mobile phone in our pockets to the streets of Egypt and Tunisia, we live in a mobile world and there'll be more of this discussion at the conference itself. Thank you very much to Julia Hobsbawm, Charlie Beckett and to Gabby Derbyshire. And thanks for listening.